Good morning, or good whatever time you're viewing or, or reading this. I've posted the uh, manuscript online on our website. I've been praying that God and His sovereignty will, will use these unprecedented times for His purposes, for His glory, and for our good. Because this is not ideal. Recorded or online church is not a perfect or even adequate substitute for God wants us to experience as his church. I know for me this is uh, uh, very strange. Preaching, teaching, not to people. Well, I have my wife's here and Chad is helping with this. But mainly to, to you in, in, through a camera. I truly miss all of you. I'm picturing some of you seated here. I lament the fact that we and so many others uh, are separated this Sunday, and it seems we'll be separated for several Sundays to come. There can be no, no doubt that we are meant to gather together as the body of Christ. We're meant to lift our voices together in worship to Him. We're not to neglect meeting together. There's great power and encouragement and joy in the gathering of the corporate church, and unfortunately... Uh, we'll miss this for a time. As a church, we're trying different ways to utilize online resources to meet together, and I'm excited that we can do this. Imagine if, if this had happened 20 or even maybe 10 years ago, this would probably not be possible. We would be isolated in even greater ways. But God has seen fit to allow this to happen in 2020. And so because He's the Lord of the universe... Because he's almighty and all-powerful and all-knowing, we can trust that he knows, he knows what he's doing. We can trust that he'll work even in these difficult times. I don't know exactly how he'll work, but I've been praying for myself and for each one of you that in our isolation from one another that we'll draw closer to the Lord. I'm praying for us that, that even in our isolation, we, we can have opportunities, take opportunities to be his ambassadors to the people he does allow us to have contact with. And I'm praying that as we draw closer to him and as we serve others, that we will be transformed in, in new ways. That God, for his great glory, will use this time to transform us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father God, I pray for this time as we, as we look at your word and as we're separated, as we're in our homes. Lord, I pray that you would work. I pray that your word would go forth and, and in powerful ways it would impact our hearts. That through your word, through the revelation of who you are and who you want us to be, that we will be changed and, and you will use us for your purposes, for your good for your glory and for our good. In Christ's name, amen. So as I thought about what I, would, what, what I should preach today, part of me wanted to postpone uh, Romans chapter 12 until we, uh, we get back together. Because this is really good and powerful stuff. I was, I was thinking maybe it would have been better if Romans 9 through 11 had been during the, the virus but another part of me, I think the spiritual part, said that, the, that right now we need this good and this powerful stuff. So my current plan is to continue to preach through the book of Romans. We will continue to produce these videos and, and post them by Sunday morning at 10, at 10 a.m. Now before the virus stuff started, I was planning to be off for uh, a week 
next week, and Chad was going to preach for me. And, we're, and we've decided that even though I can't go anywhere, Chad will still preach. He's going to ask us the question, is God changing for our culture? And I'm looking forward to that. But today we're in Romans chapter 12, uh, still in verse 1. This begins Paul's practical instruction to the church. Last week we established that the behavior and the ethics, how we should live, that God demands in Romans 12 through 16 has its foundation in the doctrine and theology of Romans 1 through 11. That the motivation, the basis for practical Christian living, Romans 12 through 16, is right Christian thinking, Romans 1 through 11. And at the center of right Christian thinking are the mercies of God. Paul writes, Romans 12:1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Paul knows that he's, he's about to write. What he's about to write, what we're about to study, is an appeal. He's crying out to Christians in Rome and throughout history to make uh, drastic changes in the way they think and in the way they live. And this appeal has its basis in, in what he's already written in Romans 1-11. through 11. I appeal to you, therefore based on what has gone before. Specifically, I appeal to you by or because of or in view of the mercies of God. And last week, we spent the bulk of our time remembering the mercies of God from, uh, that, that form the basis of Paul's appeal. And we must keep these mercies in view as we move forward. We must remember that it's because of God's mercies because he gives us salvation and sanctification and, and eternal life, because he forgives and he frees us from and he delivers us from sin, because he gives us peace and love and he adopts us into his family. We are his children. And so much more, so much more mercy that comes forth from God. It's because of his mercies, his great and wondrous uh, compassion that we are to be motivated and empowered to live out the purposes he has for our lives. And it's those purposes that we'll begin to look at this morning. Today, we'll look at just the first way God is calling us to live. But this is more than just one of, of many commands from God. I believe that along with the second command found in verse 2 that we'll look at in, in two weeks, uh, that this first command is at the very heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Listen to the word of God in Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Let's walk through this appeal, this command together. First, you are to present your bodies. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies. Paul is making an appeal to Christians. There are things he wants us to do, actions he wants us to take. And the first action is to present, uh, to give. This reinforces the fact that we have a choice in the matter. We must decide to present or not to present. That is the question. Now, this may be obvious to some, but it seems that, that many believe the Christian life is to be effortless. That because we're saved by grace, a work of God, because we're recipients of the mercies of God, that means that we do nothing. But actually, the opposite is true. 
Because of God's grace and mercies, we are to do much. Again, not in an effort to earn his grace, his mercy, his love. Romans 1 through 11 has taught us that those are already ours in Christ. Instead, in response to God's grace, in response to his mercy and his love, we are in his power to dramatically live in new ways. Put very simply, because of Romans 1 through 11, do Romans 12 through 16. Or in the same way as Paul says to the church in Ephesus, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is the doctrine, the theology, truth that you, through no effort of your own, are saved by grace through faith. It's a gift, a free gift, and therefore you have no reason. You didn't earn it. You didn't do anything for it. You have no reason to boast. But Paul doesn't stop with just this doctrine, this truth. He continues, verse 10 For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In response to being saved by grace through faith, we are to engage in good works, in the good works that God has prepared for us. We're to walk, we're to live in God's good works, God's good works for his good purposes. And the first or foundational work we're to do, we're to live, is to present our bodies to God. Now, why does Paul say to present uh, or to offer up, to give to God our bodies? We might think that it would be better if he, if he were to say we were to offer up our mind or our soul or our heart. But Paul is making a point to his Gentile Christian readers. These Greeks and Roman Christians were brought up to believe that the body is, is in some way negative, it's bad, even irredeemable, and that spirituality involves only cultivating the mind or the, the soul, the inner self. So by using the word bodies, Paul is saying to these Gentiles, to us, that God does not want just your mind and your soul. He requires your whole self. Yes, he wants your inner self, but he knows that, that it's the outer self, the body, the things we do that reflects what's happening within. God wants us to give him not just what we think or feel, but everything we do. What follows in Romans 12 through 16 is about that very fact, about what we do, how we live. Commenting on Paul's choice of the word bodies, John Stott writes, Paul made it plain in his exposure of human depravity in Romans chapter 3, verses 13 and following, that it reveals itself through our bodies in tongues which practice deceit and lips which spread poison and mouths which are full of cursing and bitterness and feet which are swift to shed blood and in eyes which look away from God. Conversely, Christian sanctity shows itself in the deeds of the body. So we are to offer different parts of our bodies to God as instruments of righteousness. Then our feet will walk in, in his paths, our lips will speak the truth and, and spread the gospel, our tongues will bring healing, our hands will lift up those who have fallen, our arms will embrace the lonely and the unloved, our ears will listen to the cries of the distressed, and our eyes will look humbly and patiently towards God. So we are to present our bodies to God. 
Paul then describes the degree to which we are to make this presentation. We aren't loaning God our bodies. We aren't giving him limited access to parts of our bodies. We are to present our bodies, our whole selves, as living sacrifices. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Unlike our day, in Paul's day, people were very familiar with this idea of of sacrifice, of sacrifices. And here Paul, a Jew, would be thinking of the kind of sacrifices that took place in in the Jewish temple. He's comparing the Christian to the worshiper at the temple who comes in with a a sacrificial offering to God. Now, some temple offerings were were what what the Old Testament calls sin offerings. Through the priest, the worshiper was shedding blood and and asking forgiveness for their sins. But that can't be the, the kind of offering Paul is referring to here because he's already made it clear that Jesus is our sin offering. Romans 8 Verse 3, he wrote, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Jesus Christ on the cross became our sin offering. So the sacrifice Paul points to is not a sin offering. But the second kind of offering at the temple was a whole burnt offering. This was an offering of an animal from your flock. The animal had to be without defect, holy, uh, without blemish. Why? Because animals without defect were valuable. They were the cream of the crop. And to offer one showed that, that all belonged to God. He was the owner of all you had. And you showed this by giving him not your leftovers, but your very best. Also, the burnt offering was always burnt uh, totally. The best of the flock was given fully to God, which represented complete devotion to Him. The sacrifice showed that God deserved all. Now, in Israel's history, we know that, that this did not always take place. They did not always give God their best, and for that they were rebuked. God took this very seriously. The prophet Malachi writes, When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. But you say, what a weariness this is, and and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what you have taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has made uh, a male in his flock and, and who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. I hope you see the point here. God is not some beggar on the streets. When we offer something to God, it's not as if he's panhandling. He's not a beggar who's happy with whatever we have, whatever change we have in our pocket. He's the king of all. He's the Lord of glory, the Lord of hosts. All you have, all I have, all we have is His. Therefore, present Him with your very best. We, however, like Israel, tend to be content with giving God our leftovers. 
what we no longer need, what, what is not very valuable to us, our spare time, uh, a little money left over at the end of the month, an hour or two here or there serving his people. I mean, we're giving something, right? Something is better than nothing, right? As I mentioned last week, I just bought a, a 2020 Toyota RAV4 Hybrid, and I already had a 2010 Ford Escape. So this meant I had two cars, and my daughter and her husband needed another car. So I gave one of the cars to them. Can you guess which one I gave them? Anyone? No, just kidding. Obviously, the 2010 Ford Escape. I gave them what I didn't need. I gave them my leftovers, which is fine, and which they very much appreciated, But when it comes to God, the owner and provider of all things, he is not satisfied with our leftovers. He requires our best, our first fruits, if you will. He requires us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, in general, sacrifices don't live long. Uh, They are killed. Burnt offerings do not survive the fire. So what does Paul mean by a, a living sacrifice? Well, what's the difference between uh, the living and the dead? Uh, The living continue to be active. They continue to use their bodies, their minds, their, their wills, their emotions. They continue to act. And so it seems the word living implies the continual act of sacrificing yourself to God. The word sacrifice actually means to kill. So we're to present ourselves as a living uh, killing We are to continually present ourselves our very best, who we are, to God. This is exactly what Jesus meant when he said, Luke 9, 23, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and daily follow me. A living sacrifice, a living killing, is one who daily or constantly denies himself. He denies his former thoughts and feelings and actions and instead embraces the thoughts and feelings and actions of the one he follows, of Jesus Christ. He takes up his cross. He offers his best. He offers everything himself as a living sacrifice. His life is no longer his own. He is bought with a price. And that means a new, a radically different way of living. Denying self and being a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, Paul continues. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Let me first define these these two words, holy and acceptable. Holy to God means to be utterly pure and completely set apart to God for His purposes. And acceptable or pleasing, as the NIV translates it, means to be accepted by God, to be pleasing to God. And as I was thinking about this phrase, uh, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, I was wondering if Paul meant that, that we can present our bodies as a living sacrifice because we are already holy and acceptable to God? Or did he mean that presenting our bodies to God as living sacrifices means that we are to live holy and acceptable to God? And as I thought about it, I realized it wasn't one or the other, it's both. 
Much of what we've seen in Romans 1 through 11 testifies to the fact that because of Jesus Christ and because by faith we are in Christ, we are now like Christ, we are holy before God, as the author of Hebrews puts it. We've been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Through our faith in the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made on the cross, we've been made holy and therefore acceptable to God. But Scripture also commands us to be holy. Writing to believers, Peter says, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. So so what's the deal? If we're already holy, therefore acceptable to God, then why command us to be holy in all of our conduct? Well, as Martin Lloyd-Jones said, holiness is not something we're called upon to do in order that we may become something. It is something that we are to do because of what we already are. God, through Christ, has declared us to be holy, and therefore the Christian life is to be a daily giving over of our lives to holiness, giving over our bodies in obedience to God setting aside our our lives for Him and for His purposes, remembering and being motivated by keeping God's mercies in view, knowing what we have as we stand at the foot of the cross and see Jesus dying there for us. We have Christ. So holy to God describes both who we are in Christ and the quality of life that we should pursue because of God's mercies through Christ. And this is a life of obedience set apart for the purposes of God. And being acceptable or pleasing to God describes the result of a life of holiness. Do you see how this totally reorients our lives? As people, we tend to want to be accepted by by others. We live to please maybe our parents, our spouse, our friends, our family our employers, our employees even, our fellow church members, and most of all, we usually live to please ourselves. And I'm not saying that pleasing others or even ourselves is always a bad thing, but it's a very bad thing if it's not done under the umbrella of pleasing the Lord first and foremost. As Christians, we are no longer hoping and seeking to please others or even ourselves, but we must seek by holy living to please our Heavenly Father. As Paul put it to the church in Thessalonica, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. So know this, the mercies of God provided to us through Jesus Christ both motivate us and free us to live lives that please our Creator. In God's mercies, we find that trusting in Christ brings God's full and complete favor and approval to us. The Spirit changes us from those whose minds were hostile to God to those whose real natures desire to love and to serve God. To the church in Galatia, the Apostle Paul writes, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. To be baptized into Christ is not, he's not speaking about uh, water baptism here. He's speaking about what water baptism symbolizes, that those who trust in Christ, we die to ourselves and are made alive in Christ. We put on Christ. 
And what that means is when God sees the believer, he sees Jesus and his perfect holiness. And so he says to us what he said to Jesus, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Therefore, we can know that God is pleased with us. And because God is pleased with us, we can live in a, in a way which pleases God. We know that as we obey sacrificially, we are pleasing our heavenly Father. So we long to obey God, not for ourselves, so that God will save us, but out of gratitude to God, who we know has already saved us. God's approval frees us to live in a way which God approves of. We are his children by his grace. In view of this, we long to please the God who is pleased with us. Here's a helpful illustration from Tim Keller. Imagine a father watching his young son play baseball for his team, having spent hours in the yard teaching him uh, batting techniques. The father already loves his son fully and completely. If his son forgets his father's instructions and strikes out, it will in no way lessen his father's love for him or approval of him. The son is assured of his father's love regardless of his performance. But the son will still long to hit the home run, not for himself to gain his father's love, but for his father because he is already loved. If he doesn't know his father's love, his father loves him, his efforts will be for himself to win that love. But because he knows his father already loves him, his efforts are for his father to please him. Having a, a good view of God's mercy, of God's love, provides us with both a powerful assurance and the possibility or, or the motivation to live sacrificially obedient lives pleasing to God. And it's this kind of life which is your spiritual worship. That's our fourth and final point. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, what does that mean? Unfortunately, I think the, the English translation and the ESV, and if you look at the NIV, uh, spiritual worship, makes this a little difficult to, to understand. It may cause us to, to, uh, to, to miss several important points. In the Greek, the word spiritual is logikos, which literally means rational or logical. This means that clear, rational thinking about the mercies of God should logically result in the response of presenting your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. In short, once, once you have a, a good view of God's mercies, once you understand what God has done for you. Anything less than total, complete sacrifice of yourself is completely irrational. If you understand the mercies of God, if you understand what he's done for you, and you have not in response given him your whole self, then you're acting irrationally. You're being crazy, if you will. If you give yourself partially or half-heartedly, you are simply not thinking clearly. You are not looking at what God through Jesus Christ actually did for you. If God's mercies do not motivate you to give yourself to him completely, then you have to ask yourself if you have truly grasped the reality of what he's done for you. 
So when you struggle to obey, when you struggle to live a holy and acceptable life to God, the ultimate remedy is not your own personal willpower. It's not even greater accountability with others in the body. The ultimate answer is to remember, to study, to meditate on the marvelous mercies of God, believing in them, trusting in them, then presenting yourself to Him becomes the only rational, the only logical and and spiritual thing to do. Now what about the word worship? It's the Greek word lateria. And it certainly means worship. But what kind of worship? Because it literally means service or divine service, service to God. So when Paul says that we are to present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, he's not thinking primarily of a church service. He's not thinking of how emotional we get when we sing songs. He's not thinking about how high we lift our hands in adoration to God. He's thinking way beyond the the doors of the church. He's thinking way beyond our personal quiet times even, our, our times of prayer and Bible study. Yes, all of these things are important. But he's thinking about how we daily live our lives in service to God. Notice he says, which is your spiritual worship, your rational or logical service? What is? He's referring back to presenting your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. That's what it means to worship, to be in service to God. We certainly worship God by declaring his glory through song. But if if that's all worship is to you, then you've missed the boat completely. Worship is offering yourself to God presenting ourselves completely and fully holy and acceptable to God, saying and meaning and living, God, I will do what you want me to do. I will be what you want me to be. I will go where you want me to go. That is spiritual worship. And that's what we have, we who have received the mercies of God must do. That's how we must live. And what might that look like, you ask? Well, that's what Paul will continue to describe throughout Romans 12 through 16. These chapters could be titled Instruction in Spiritual Worship, Rational Service to God. So let me just end with three simple yet, I think, profound instructions of rational service that might be helpful to us in these strange days, right now in this time of unprecedented isolation even. Romans 12 through 16 are filled with instructions. Last week we talked about uh, 12.13 that calls us to contribute to the needs of the saints and to show hospitality. That is certainly relevant for us today. And if you look back one verse, Romans 12.12, Paul gives three, three more, three other practical ways to rationally serve, to spiritually worship God. First, he says rejoice in hope. The world around us The media, sometimes our own family and friends are not presenting a very hopeful picture of our situation, but we can rejoice in hope because we know that our God is merciful and that our God is in full control, that no virus has ever caught him by surprise, that he's at work for our good and for his glory. Today, even if you can't find eggs or milk or uh, toilet paper at the store, rejoice in hope. 
rejoice in the sure hope that you're a child of the great and the merciful God. Second, be patient in tribulation. This is a command some of us need to hear. Right now, our world is going through a specific tribulation. This isn't the great tribulation, but it's a tribulation. And it's causing some to panic. Reference the stock market. Look at your grocery store shelves. But God calls his people, even and especially in times of difficulty, to be patient, to not lose our cool. Again, knowing who God is, a God of love and mercy, and knowing that he is in control, he controls the beginning and the ending of any particular tribulation, whether that's a personal tribulation or a worldwide tribulation. And in its midst, in the midst of the tribulation, he calls his people to react differently. He calls us to react with patience, to wait on the Lord. In Psalm 27, 14, uh, David wrote, Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Be patient. The Lord is at work. And finally, Paul says, be constant in prayer. This virus and the reaction of people and governments is out of our control. But they're not out of God's control. And we've been given the privilege of prayer. We can express our desires, our hopes to God in prayer, knowing that he cares for us, that he's at work for our good in the midst of uh, this and in all circumstances. We can pray for ourselves and for others. We can pray for one another. I would call you, even in this time, to be in prayer. Maybe, maybe be texting your friends, your family, your fellow church members. How can I pray for you? What are you going through? How can I, how can I pray for you? Because, because we may be isolated from one another, but we are not isolated from God. Jesus said, I am always with you, and he is with us now. And you know what? It's during these times of uh, tribulation when Christians who live in holiness, when, when they rejoice in hope and display patience and turn to the Lord in prayer, it's when we do these things that God is glorified through our lives. It's when we do these things that people want to know, who is it that you serve? Who is it that you worship that causes you to have hope, that causes you to re rejoice and be patient and to, to pray? So in this time of uncertainty, I would call upon us the body of Christ is those who, who know the one who's in control in light of his great mercies as we come in contact with people in whatever ways, that, ways, forms that takes in our neighborhoods, in our jobs, in our stores, wherever. Yes, continue to practice social distancing, but, but there are times when we engage with people as we speak to family and friends on the phone, as we video chat with coworkers. Express yourself in a holy manner. Be patient. Be hopeful. Be prayerful. And in, and in so doing, call attention to the God you worship, to the God that you serve. God bless you, and, and would you join me in prayer? Father God, I thank you. I thank you that you're in control, and I thank you that you've given us instructions for living. Lord, I pray for myself, I pray for each one of us. 
I pray that we would, uh, on a daily basis even, present our bodies to you as living sacrifices, that we would seek to live holy and acceptable lives in light of the fact that you have declared us to be holy, Father. Lord, that we would worship you, certainly with our words. Certainly, I pray that we will soon be able to come back together and worship you as a corporate body of Christ. But in these times, especially, that you would remind us to worship you with our actions, with our attitudes, with our daily lives, that you might be glorified. In Christ's name, amen.